Happy Halloween! We had to throw in one more October special. Had to sneak it in. I'm Erin. I'm Tom. And this is Baby's First Watch List, a Final Girl Stan podcast. Yes. <laughs> Over the last month, we have uh, been a spooky season podcast, and I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. I was a little not sure when it came to it when you suggested it, but I think I like it a lot. I think we did okay with balancing horror movies and non-horror movies. It also helped that the horror movies that we watched, I don't think are that scary. No. That helps. Yeah. Watching like older horror movies, it's not so bad. It's kind of like a thriller today. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't think that our movie today is super horror-y, even though it is. Well, I, I mean, when it came out, it was... Of course. It know, was... For its time. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't like, terrified of it. No. So today's feature is one of the OGs of horror. I'm just really brave, I think. Maybe you're just really strong and macho. It's 1978's Halloween. This movie, directed, co-written, and scored by John Carpenter. Really crazy. Yes, the iconic music is from Carpenter himself. Um, this is a true independent film success story. Co-written by frequent Carpenter collaborator, at the time girlfriend of, uh, and Haddonfield, New Jersey native, Deborah Hill. Weren't they married at one point? They might have been. I think they might have been married. Halloween is probably best known for launching two careers. That of star Jamie Lee Curtis. And of supervillain Michael Myers. Who would go on to star in three Austin Powers films. <laughs> Do you think that Mike Myers is like, are you joking? I read in one of the IMDb trivia things that he hates it. But I feel uh, like knowing him and hearing his interviews, like when I was researching for Shrek, I feel like he probably embraces it in real life. I mean, it's probably annoying to get that all the time. Yeah, and also he may have gone by Michael Myers had, not, had Michael Myers not existed. So maybe Ooh. he is just trying to differentiate You're himself. You're probably right because... Although it seems I think he's old enough to have been alive when Halloween came out. Yeah, he was. I don't think his career had started yet. Right, his career hadn't started, so he couldn't really go by Michael because he wasn't on SNL until like what, like the the eighties, mid eighties, eighty five, maybe. It's kind of like how Emma Stone couldn't go by her real name, Emily Stone, because there was already an Emily Stone with like a SAG account or something. Um, so in the union, so she went by Emma Stone. Mike Myers can't go by Michael Myers, which is kind of hilarious. He could. I mean, he could, but that would be kind of wild. He, I think uh, the expectations on him would be slightly different if he Maybe did. a little bit. He wears masks and stuff. Yeah. Just you not know, on, on the, the William show. Shatner mask <laughs> painted. It was taken first. Clocking in at an amazing 91 minutes long. Ugh, I'll say it again. 91 minutes long. Euphoria. Ugh, I love it. Halloween was a commercial and critical success, especially um, retrospectively. I know it got good reviews, but it was kind of, there were some criticisms uh, with contemporaneous reviews. Yeah. Retrospectively, not really. I Everyone feel like, really likes it. I feel like that's a, a little common with Carpenter's movies. If you think about The Thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, I, th I love The Thing. I think he has a few of those where it was like not super well received at the time, but eventually became a classic. Sure. This one made $70 million on a budget of, ready for it? Yes, I know it. $300,000. No. 
$320,000. Okay, they said between $300,000 and $325,000. Well, I just put it on the lower end to make it more impressive. Listen, the movie was $300,000. They had to pony up an extra twenty k to get Donald Pleasance. Which is fair. That's the $320,000. Obviously, that makes it one of the most successful indie films ever made. I never thought of Halloween as an indie movie. No, because you think about how many major blockbusters it's, expired, it's uh, inspired. They got Busta Rhymes in one of the movies. I know, and LL Cool J. I mean, what can you... It's obviously a huge success. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in one of them. Yeah, big cast. Carpenter was paid ten grand to direct, and he said he would only do it if he had complete creative control. Oh, listen. I listened to a bunch of Carpenter interviews this morning. He's that very guy, much uh, Orson Welles in that he doesn't care about just absolutely massacring people yes. in uh, like by maligning their reputation. He also said that he wished he was... Um, directing in the studio era of like the 40s because they got all this control and then the interviewer was like wasn't that time famous for like not having control and the studio took all the control and he was like yeah i might just be being nostalgic about that (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's funny um carpenter was very influenced by black christmas a movie by bob clark where a killer stalks a group of sorority sisters on christmas i had never heard of this movie black christmas beforehand um, but it starred the final girl in that one is the girl who played Romeo and Juliet in that original movie where you, you've probably seen it in like high school and they had to fast forward because it showed some inappropriate parts. Okay. Um, I saw in high school, I watched the nineties. Oh, really? I watched both versions. Okay. Um, I guess my high school just really liked watching the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bob Clark also directed a Christmas story. Oh, really? Which is really funny. Yeah. And diverse, he, diverse uh, director. Yeah. And sorry to the Clark family. Sorry. I know it sucks. And Black Christmas, of course, was very, uh, if you listen to that, a killer that uh, stalks sorority sisters on Christmas was very influential for Halloween. Bob Clark was asked if he thought that it was kind of like he was ripping him off or whatever. John Carpenter was ripping him off. And Bob Clark said no. That apparently Carpenter had gone to him and asked if he wanted to do a sequel. And Clark was like, I'm done with horror movies. But if I'm doing a Christmas story. Yeah. He's like, if uh, what would be your idea? And John Carpenter was like, pretty much the same thing. But then he escapes and he stalks babysitters on Halloween. And Bob Clark was like, I didn't think he stole from me. I think I'm an influence and that's cool. Yeah. I mean, everybody takes something from somewhere. Yeah, of course. Um, it took, according to Wikipedia... 10 days only to write the script. But then a few sentences later on Wikipedia, Deborah Hill said it took three weeks. Yeah, who knows? So who knows? Um, Donald Pleasance, who played Dr. Loomis, was paid 20 grand. And newcomer Jamie Lee Curtis, $8,000. A lot of the cast got a percentage of the profits, though. Oh, and I bet that that's yeah. great then. Yeah, they said that was the deal that, that worked out for a lot of them. Donald Pleasance was the name. He was a well-known actor at that time. Carpenter said he wanted somebody who had some gravitas and was British. He definitely did. Yeah, he did. Um, And the name Dr. Loomis, they got from Psycho. Do you know how um, he got on board the movie? No. His He had seen Assault on Precinct 13, which was mm-hmm. John Carpenter's previous movie. Yep. And he was like, I kind of liked it, but I didn't really get it. And then I went home, he was like, I thought it was a little too tongue in cheek. And then I went home and my teenage daughters explained to me about what the whole movie was and like why it was that way and everything. And I was like, you know what? This guy's actually pretty good. And then he went and he, and he did Halloween. And he was also on set talking about 
like John Carpenter, like how he didn't really get the movie and how he was just kind of trusting Carpenter and like, that's cool. He was like, I don't really like a lot of this and he knows I don't like a lot of it. And he ended up being in a bunch of the Halloween movies too. Oh yeah. He's like the, other than Jamie Lee Curtis, he's like the Halloween character. Yeah. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis, this was her first, uh, movie role. She was best 19 at the time and best known as Janet Lee's daughter. Janet Lee was the big name, like kind of the Drew Barrymore scream name in Psycho. A lot of Psycho here. A lot of Psycho. Psycho is such a good movie. Um, and you could definitely see the influence there. Halloween ended up becoming a Hollywood juggernaut with a total of a spooky 13 films made <laughs> as of like a couple weeks ago, maybe one week ago. Um, the current timeline, it's kind of crazy. So like there's some movies that completely disregard the other timeline, like the timeline it's in. There's some that are completely separate from another. So like you have Halloween 1978 and then there's another one in 81. And then there's like, there's a bunch of sequels that follow that. And then there's some that are follow the 1981 one into two other movies, including the H2O one. <laughs> yes, the 20 years later one. And then there's uh, two movies that are just completely separate. That have nothing. Which are the new ones, right? No. That have nothing to do with any of oh, them. Oh, is that Halloween Resurrection, the one with Buster Rhymes? Maybe. There's two of them that are like that. And then the current timeline is the 1978 one, the original one that we're going to talk about today. Then the 2018 Halloween, then Halloween Kills, and then Halloween Ends, Halloween, which just came out. Halloween Kills was like 2020 or 2021. Yes. So that's the kind of current timeline one where it goes straight from this one with Laurie Strode's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character right to 2018's Halloween, which again is called Halloween. I think there's three of them that are just called Halloween. <laughs> it's very confusing. Um, do, do, do. So Halloween Ends was just released. It did not do super well critically. The only ones that really did well were this one, the original, and the 2018 Halloween. Okay. The rest have gotten very mixed to poor reviews. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you compare it with the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, yeah. which got bad, bad, bad reviews, and yeah. I watched it the other, parts of it the other day, it is a bad movie. Yeah. The Halloween remake probably had to be pretty good to get two more movies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know how well it did. I do know I, that... I um, a, if you watch Bravo, it was the most important movie ever made because they had constant, constant commercials and commercials within reunions on the show. Um, if you are not a Bravo fan, if you're not part of Bravo Nation, if you don't know your Bravo celebrities, or if you don't live with someone who is, yeah, because Tom already knows. Um, Kyle Richards, who is an original, the original that's still on the cast, housewife of Beverly Hills, she, while a tiny, tiny girl, I don't know how old she was, maybe five or six, seven, I don't something know. like that. She played little Lindsay in the original 1978 Halloween. And she is it has in, been living off it since that day. Oh, my God. And she is in the new ones as well. And the way that they promote it, you would think that it's Jamie Lee Curtis and Kyle Richards fighting Michael Myers for 90 minutes straight every time. Well, I would say that it's, you know, 12 years a slave and... You know, the Shawshank Redemption and 
Halloween ends are the three most important movies of our time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the Halloween series is currently the highest grossing horror series of all time. If you adjust for inflation and all that good stuff, it has a profit of $761.3 million. So that's almost one Avengers movie. <laughs> I know. Like, that is wild. Um, but I mean, wow. That's almost one Avatar I watched this movie when I was younger and re-watching it now, it made me almost question whether I had watched it the first time. Mm -hmm. It was very different than I remembered. I had never seen it. It was much more plodding and slow. Would you say Michael Myers-esque? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> much like the killer's kind of stomping slow walk uh it was a lot kind of more patiently paced than i had anticipated i don't think there's necessarily a problem with that i i'm gonna ask you that in one of my questions well i've, I've got an answer for you when you let's, when you ask it yeah okay cool so right now let's just get a summary and tom i thinking about this i feel like this is gonna be your shortest summary it because it's so patiently paced i'll call it there, not that much actually happens. I've it's got a, all on, well, besides the first part, it's all on like one night. I've got a decent um, summary, and I think a lot of it is because I described some of the details. So uh, you want me to start? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Halloween, 1978. The movie starts on Halloween in 1963 in the town of Haddonfield, Illinois. From a first-person perspective, we slowly enter a house. We grab a big chef's knife. We walk upstairs. We put on a mask. We enter a bedroom where a young girl is brushing her hair. Suddenly, we begin to stab the young girl repeatedly. Then, we walk back down the stairs and out to the front lawn, where the camera switches back out to the third person, as the mask is removed to reveal a six-year-old child named Michael. He just kind of like stands there. He's like, oops. Yeah. His name is Michael Myers, and he's just killed his teenage sister, Judith. Boom. Halloween title card. Wild. 15 years later, on October 30th, all Hallows' Eve Eve, 1978, 15 years later, Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Samuel Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, arrives at Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where Michael lives. When Dr. Loomis's car pulls up, the adult Myers, played by Nick Castle, having escaped the sanitarium, steals the car and heads back to Haddonfield. I got a little bit confused at that part. So there were a bunch of people who are patients, in inpatients, that were just like kind of loitering about the property. So does that mean that like they took over or something? No, like think of Shutter Island. Yeah. Okay. Like how they were all just kind of out and about. Yeah, but it was nighttime. Yeah. So maybe something had happened to me. Maybe he know. broke a bunch of them out. If who knows? He's, if he just kind of was like, yeah, I'm out. Yeah. Then maybe like he was like, ha ha, we're taking over, but actually I'm out. Bye. There's a lot about this part that makes no sense. How does he know how to drive? Things like that. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> He's been since he was six. I, I think they I think they actually mention it. I think the sheriff says something to Loomis, and Loomis is like, I don't know, maybe maybe somebody taught him on the inside or something. You know what I mean? Maybe he because you know, Loomis was his specifically assigned psychiatrist. So maybe when Loomis was driving in places, he was kind of just like watching and, and also if there's you not think there's about not a real it, explanation, but at least they do mention it. And if you think about it too. How many times are there like 16-year-olds in cars going like 20 miles an hour on the highway that at the top it's like this driving school yeah. and you're like, oh, that's the 
first time that they're literally behind the wheel. Yeah. So maybe it's that. Maybe he's just like, well, you know, I can just try. Well, he makes <laughs> it back to Haddonfield, but we don't see how he gets there. So we don't know what the journey was like. It could have been a disaster. True. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm at, that would be like such a fun, like, comedy movie <laughs> yes. in between. Why didn't we have that? Why? Why do we have like 15,000 Halloween movies, but we don't have like Halloween drives, Halloween drives. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yes. That's the next one. We got to pitch that. Okay. Um, so Myers kills a mechanic for his coveralls and then steals knives, ropes, and a white mask from a hardware store, which also the sheriff was like, oh, it's Halloween. Kids are going to steal all that stuff. Yeah, you, what the heck? These kids are stealing knives? The sheriff? You gotta, listen, if you're if you, these kids are stealing knives from this hardware store, you've got a bigger problem than Michael Myers. They were going to the murder, murder aisle in Walmart. Exactly. There's like a certain aisle in Walmart where every single true crime podcast, like the killer always goes to that murder aisle and gets all that murder stuff. I thought you were going to say uh, they were going to the beach that makes you old. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. The following day, Halloween. High school student Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, drops off a key at the abandoned Myers home that her father is trying to sell. I just looked up and our son was staring me directly in the <laughs> literally eyes. Literally watching me. Is, oh, he's sleeping now. But he was so like very just intent on you right there. <laughs> he, he was like, I remember this movie. He was loving that final scene. This is so inappropriate to have a yeah. baby watch. Anyway, Myers. My, uh, okay, relax. <laughs> <laughs> Myers watches Laurie from inside the window as she does so. He begins to stalk her. She sees him behind hedges and across streets and the like. That was probably my favorite part of this movie. The hedges? That, yeah, that was so creepy. But like the parts where he's him kind stalking. of stalking her. And then her. you get like that, like very sharp crescendo in the, uh, in the music. Yeah. Or staccato. Yeah, really scary. Um, when, um, Lori's friends, Annie and Linda dismiss her concerns. I didn't write the actress's names. I forget. I don't know, but they're not very good friends to be honest. They're very you. bad friends. They're I talk about, mean. I talk about that later. When Dr. Loomis arrives in Haddonfield, he finds that Judith Myers' tombstone is missing from the cemetery. And the sheriff's like, oh, those crazy kids. Apparently, the kids in this town are the worst kids that have ever existed. Or, let's face it, the sheriff might not be the brightest bulb. Yeah. The sheriff is also uh, Annie's dad. Yes. Who doesn't, like, ever, like, interact with her. No, I know. I thought that was kind of weird. Um... So Loomis speaks with Sheriff Lee Brackett, who is Annie's father, and they head over to the Myers home. Loomis tells Sheriff Brackett that Michael is pure evil. So this is a quote that yes, he has that I think sums up Michael Myers. Loomis explains, I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no conscience, no reason, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death or right or wrong. Now, I mean, this is all in a British accent, too. Way cooler than I can make it. It's kind of crazy. There's that, more. Wait, but that means that Michael's only 21? Yeah. Why did I think he was like a 40-year-old man? Yeah. <laughs> he continued, I met this six-year-old boy with a blank, cold, emotionless face and the blackest of eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and another seven trying to keep him locked away when I realized what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely, simply evil. That would be wild if, like, young Sheldon the next season took a wild tone shift. <laughs> and that's the quote they used to describe young Sheldon. Yeah. I, I, saw, I saw an ad the other day for his next episode where he apparently made some, he made some, like, intern or something, like, like, like kill an animal to get the organs or whatever for the, and, and. I'm calling it now. Next season, it's going to be a major tonal shift. Yes. 
Um, so Sheriff Brackett is a little hesitant, hesitant to believe Loomis, but he decides to patrol the streets while Loomis waits at the Myers home, awaiting Michael's return. Loomis seems like not really that concerned, honestly. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to just like hang around this town a little bit, yeah. walk around. Yeah, he's he's very meandering. You would think he would at least get ice cream or something. <laughs> like uh, Dewey and Scream? Exactly. Later that night, Lori babysits a child named Tommy Doyle, and Annie babysits a child named Lindsay Wallace, which is Kyle Richards' character. Yes, queen. <laughs> across the street. Michael pulls double duty here, stalking both of them, but first killing the Wallace's dog. Tommy spots Michael outside the house and screams and calls him the boogeyman, but Lori doesn't pay the talk any mind. Annie brings Lindsay over to the Doyle house to spend the night so she can go hang out with her boyfriend, Paul. When Annie leaves the house and gets into her car, Michael appears in the back seat, strangles her, and slits her throat. Goodbye, Annie. Shortly thereafter, Linda and her boyfriend, Bob, show up to the Wallace house, Lindsay's house, which is now empty, because Annie and Lindsay had left to go across the street. Linda and Bob have sex. Remember the scream rolls. Yep. Thou shall not have sex. And Bob goes downstairs to get Linda a beer. While he's downstairs, the hulking Michael Myers lifts him up against the wall and pins him to it with a kitchen knife. R.I.P. Bob. Myers heads upstairs with a sheet over his head and wacky sunglasses on. Linda starts to flirt with him and then calls Lori to find out what happened to Annie. While she's on the phone, Michael strangles her with the phone cord, which is dated. <laughs> and Lori hears it from the other end of the line, thinking it's a joke. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis is wandering the neighborhood, and he discovers the car Myers stole at the beginning of the movie. At the same time, Laurie becomes suspicious of the phone call and heads over to the Wallace house, which is where it really starts to ramp up. She walks upstairs and finds the bodies of all of her friends, as well as that Judith Myers' stolen, as well as Judith Myers' stolen headstone in the bedroom. As she goes out into the hallway to leave, Michael appears in the dark and slashes her arm, knocking her over the stairway banister. Laurie makes it out of the house and runs back across the street to the Doyle house, where she realizes she lost the keys. Tommy takes his damn time in letting her back in the house. Because he's sleepy. Lori tells Tommy and Lindsay to hide and then tries to make a phone call, but she realizes that the phone is out. Michael sneaks in through the window and attacks Lori, but she stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle. She thinks he's dead. Of course he's not, because the killer always rises for one more scare. So she staggers upstairs to check on the kids, and then she's stunned when Michael approaches her again. Really, Mike? Yeah. She tells the kids to hide in the bathroom while she hides in her bedroom closet very loudly. <laughs> <laughs> Michael obviously finds her, and she stabs him in the eye with a coat hanger and then in the chest with the knife. She urgently tells Tommy and Lindsay to go to a neighbor's house to call the police, and as she's decompressing in the doorway, Michael sits up behind her like the undertaker. Yeah, that was great. Um, which I'm sure the undertaker got that from this. Uh, he slowly approaches Lori from behind and they have another altercation. Dr. Loomis spots the kids running from the house and shows up to see Michael and Lori fighting. Lori rips off Michael's, Michael's mask, distracting him. And then Loomis empties an entire six bullet clip into Michael, knocking him off the balcony to the ground, motionless. Lori asks Loomis if Michael was the boogeyman and he confirms as much. Loomis walks over to the balcony to be sure Michael is dead. And he's gone. <gasps> he stares off into the night, seemingly expecting as much as Laurie sobs. The camera then focuses in on various areas of the neighborhood with the incessant sound of Michael's deep, repeated breathing. Think like Darth Vader breathing. Great end. And the credits roll. Yeah. That, my favorite part of the movie is the ending. Is it? I love the ending. It is. I, I love Loomis's monologue that I read out. Yeah. Uh, 
but I think the best part is the ending. There, one of my discussion points, my first one, is that there's some really interesting shots. This, the cinematography is so good in this. It is excellent. And do you know why they did some of the shots they did? Because probably because they didn't have enough money. They had no money to do anything. So a lot of their shots were like, were like three quarters of the shot is in darkness. Yeah. And the way that they were doing, so like the shot where he appears behind her, they just, they had no exposure in the camera and then they just slowly turn the exposure up. And that's when you see his face pop out in the shadow. Some of, I feel like some of, some movies like not having money and being, having to be really creative it makes for a way better movie. Yeah. I mean, think of what we talked about with Nightmare on Elm Street with the rotating room. That was an intricately planned, I don't know how much it cost, but it was an intricately planned, like big structure. This is totally different. Yeah. This is paired way back. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. So some of, I, I read that, I think it was uh, Roger Ebert. He really liked the way that some, the way that it was filmed and particularly how they would focus on something in the foreground. Yes. While other things were happening. I heard it described as three-dimensional. It's so true. Like at the beginning, the focus in a lot of it is this jack-o'-lantern at the front. In the opening sequence. In the opening sequence where stuff is going on um, with uh, Judith and her boyfriend uh, in the back where she's talking to him and all that, where Michael's watching and yes. he sees the, it's a jack-o'-lantern in the front. And just like you said, at the end with Laurie, it's focused on her kind of gathering herself. And then in the background. And then in the background, Michael sits up. There's also another scene that was amazing. And I, I called it out when we were watching it. Um, Annie is like in the kitchen and she is um, like talking on the phone, I think with Laurie. And the way the camera works is like, there's a, you, you're looking at her in the kitchen and then there's a long hallway to the back where you see the back door. And she's pacing back and forth. And so she's almost like penduluming. Mm. And so she she's talking on the phone and she walks to the right and there's nothing behind her. Then she walks back to the left and you see Michael behind her and there's like the, 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 mm-hmm. the music cue. And then she walks back again and he's gone. Yeah. It's just those little shots that were, were playing into the slow burn and all that, which were, were, probably, were awesome. I also liked the scene where you're kind of watching over Michael's shoulder as Lori walks to school. So he's watching Lori and you're watching Michael watch Lori. That was when she was singing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Early on in the movie. Yeah. I thought that was such an interesting shot. Um, something else that was uh, interesting too is the first scene is from little Michael's perspective, often through a mask. Yeah. And with I, the breathing. With the breathing. And I thought it was a fascinating choice to show baby Michael's face right at the beginning. Yeah. You would think that it would be almost demystifying, right? You know who the killer is. You know who this weird villain guy is. But it's not. Instead, it almost makes it more creepy. Do you know who played him in the beginning in the first person? No. Deborah Hill. The writer, co-writer. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so. Zebra Hill, right? That's her name. Yeah. Um, yeah, because they had nobody else on set. They didn't have a kid on set or anything like that. And they, she was like, you know, her, her, she's just, she was like shorter in stature. She passed away, um, but she was shorter in stature, and uh, so she was like pointing it out, and she was like, oh, you know, that's my arm when you see me pick up the. That's the thing. so and interesting. Yeah. yeah. And they were like, wow. Cause, and you can notice apparently her nails were done. So if you really, really pay attention, oh you, can, you can see like something to do with her nails or something like that. That's really funny. Um, I like that in the beginning, 
I love the stalking scenes, as creepy as it sounds to say yeah. that. Um, I found that that tonally was the creepiest thing in the movie. Uh, where Lori's at school and Michael is in the background outside. And you have your classic main character board in class scene. <laughs> right, yeah. Always in every horror movie. Um, and I just I just really liked the way that it was done. Um, and the, you know, in all of those board in class scenes, they should be paying more attention to whatever lesson is given that it's almost has always something relevant. to do with the movie. And in this case, it's all about fate and whether you can, like, escape fate or if it's meant, you know, meant to be or whatever. Um, something that you mentioned as we were watching that I made a note of earlier. Um, there's like this whole thing online about 13 year olds today. And it's like a girl doing like a TikTok dance me at 13. And it's like someone who's obviously looking a lot younger and dorkier. First of all, I would like to, um, debunk, debunk that I teach 13 year olds and they're not all wearing crop tops doing TikTok dances yeah. looking like they're 22 years old. Having cat litter in the bathrooms. Right, right. <laughs> that stupid, um, uh, stupid thing that's going around. Um, So that is not something that's actually true. But you see that a lot. Like, oh, 13-year-olds look so old. Okay. These girls in 1978's Halloween Jamie Lee, looked like they were 45 years old. I was going to say, Jamie Lee Curtis looked like she was 48 years old. No disrespect to Jamie because she looks great now. And she looked great then. But yeah. she looked older. They all looked like they were 45. It must be the... The haircuts, the clothes, well, I, I don't know. I think it's because we associate these haircuts with older people because they continued to have them when they were older. Yeah, I guess so. So I think a lot of it is that in the style. I was kind of shocked, though, when I found out she was only 19. She was the only one that was a teenager. That is. And they all played high schoolers. Right, right, which is typical. Yeah, 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 yeah. But. Um, like, uh, we just finished Dairy Girls. Two of the 17-year-old Dairy Girls are 35. Yeah, well, they're all 18 at the end. Okay, yeah, yeah, that is true. <laughs> that matters. The last episode. Um... So Laurie has one poster in her room. Did you see this? I I read it somewhere, but I don't remember. I just found it to be funny because... It's an absurd one. Yeah. So Laurie is seen as this nerdy, doesn't have boyfriends, you know, loves books kind of girl. She's an excellent babysitter. The kids love her, but she acts like she's a grandma babysitter sort yeah. of thing. And so I thought, oh, she has this interesting poster and it says James Ensor, Ensor, E-N-S-O-R. And I was like, I wonder if that was like a singer in the 70s or something, right? Like maybe a pop star. Although the guy was kind of just staring at the camera in his, in the poster, like the picture of the guy. I looked it up and he's just a Belgian artist. <laughs> Like a, like a like a visual artist. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. He was like big with German expressionism. It's definitely somebody that Carpenter stuff. liked. And I was like, of course, Laurie wouldn't have Sean Cassidy on her right, wall, right, right? Like right. she would have a a Belgian. She wouldn't have painter. the Beatles. Yeah. Or something. Uh, like that. Right. Exactly. I would so, be late for the Beatles, but you know what I mean. That was so funny to me. She wouldn't have Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> right. Right. Um. So I was like, all right, a Belgian artist. That's interesting. <laughs> Um, and I went to his Wikipedia page and at the bottom it said, uh, Laurie Rhodes has a poster of him in the movie Halloween. Yeah. I was like, wow, it even made his Wikipedia yeah. page. So my first question for you, Tom, Kyle Richards is in this movie. 
Uh, like I mentioned, a tour de force. She, <laughs> yes, <laughs> she played a very young one of the the girls that Jamie Lynn, uh, Jamie Lynn. Oh my God, Jamie Lynn Spears, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lynn Spears, nineteen seventy eight, was babysitting. So Kyle Richards, um, I said already, she was an OG Beverly Hills housewife. She's still on the show. You may know uh, her sister Kathy Hilton, uh, Paris Hilton's mother, and then. She is another sister, Kim Richards, who was a child actor. She was in um, Escape from Witch Mountain, the original. And I'm pretty sure she was in, it might be John Carpenter. I just saw on Twitter, I think it was him. It was a director that talked about uh, doing a movie and absolutely terrifying the child actress while filming something. That sounds right. And in the comments... Someone was like, that was Kim Richards. <laughs> so that's Kyle Richards' sister. Oddly enough, not related to Denise Richards, who was also on... Was also a Beverly Hills housewife. Yeah. That's true. Also, I would like to just say that our son is currently hiccuping, so this could be a disaster. <laughs> I'm just okay. putting that out there. <laughs> so, Tom, um, you are not a member of uh, Bravo Nation, but your wife is. And you have unfortunately and unwillingly have your eyeballs have, you know, skimmed across Osmosis. the TV with a housewife show or two. I on. could probably name a dozen housewives. I Most of them are in legal trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know, wait, which ones are in legal trouble? Uh, Jen Shaw. Yeah. I don't remember the other one. Erica Girardi. Erica okay. Jane. Yeah. Um, oh, she's not in legal trouble. Her husband is. Okay. Ex-husband. Yeah. And then, Shout out Teresa Judice. And too. Teresa Judice, who's <laughs> not currently in legal trouble. Um, so my question is, and it doesn't need to be a housewife. It could be just a Bravo celebrity, because I know you have a couple other Bravo celebrities you know. Jerry O'Connell, is he count? Uh, I'll count him, <laughs> No, no, I'm not going to say him, but. Um, Reza, Jack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the whole Shaza squad. Sunset. Captain Lee. <laughs> Captain Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Which housewife would you want to see in as a final girl in a movie? So they don't get killed? Yeah, so they don't get okay. killed. Um, I've got two. Okay, one, I already know who one of them is. One is the new one on the New, new Jersey Housewives who is from my hometown. Okay, whose name we I don't, don't remember. even know who that is yet. But I would like her to be the final girl. Okay. Let's get Sarahville on the map, baby. All right. Uh, and of course, it's Candy, Candy Burris. Burris. <laughs> it's Candy Burris, baby. Real Housewives of Atlanta. Yeah. Celebrity Big Brother 2. She was not an OG housewife. She started in either season two or three, I think season two. Um, Candy Burris, if you don't know, she was a singer in Escape. And she also is a multi-Grammy winner, writing lots of songs for TLC and Destiny's Child. Beyonce owes her career to Candy Burris. Uh, who doesn't, though? Candy Burris, exactly. queen. Uh, so I love that. Candy Burris would be a great final girl. <laughs> I love that. It would be amazing. <laughs> You, when you wrote that question, you had to know. That's what I, I knew. Say. I knew. Um, how many other housewives can you name? Is Teresa still on New yes, Jersey? She is. Okay. So Erica Jane, you said. Yep. Uh, Candy Burris. Yeah. Um, Kyle Richards. <laughs> yeah. Jen Shaw. Jen Shaw. Yeah. Kathy Hilton's not one, right? She's a friend of, so I'll counter. Okay. Um. Come on, who's the one that I'm not loving this season on Beverly Hills? Uh, Lisa Rinna. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, who do I like on Beverly Hills the most? Is one of them Sutton? I we just like had it. We just, she, I do like Sutton. We just talked about Sutton the other day. <laughs> I do like Sutton, but it's Sutton's friend on the show. 
I don't know. Uh, Garcelle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's eight. That's I a think. lot. I think I've got eight. Yeah, that's yeah. really. I'm good. just gonna shout them out throughout the show, throughout the episode. Yeah, if I exactly. That's so funny. And don't forget, former one Lisa, Lisa Vanderpump. Vanderpump. <laughs> yeah, baby. Oh yeah, and you don't really. Um, it's kind of funny because I was a big, probably the biggest fan of uh, New York up until a couple seasons. ago. I was just trying to think of some, and I can't think of any. Luann. Okay. Sonia. Ramona, Bethany, you know Bethany. Oh, Bethany Frankel? Yeah. 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 So there's a few there you might know. Tinsley? No. No, okay. <laughs> no, 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 not Tinsley. Not Tinsley. <laughs> um, well, that's pretty good, Tom. Yeah. All right. So that was our Housewives Bravo Liberty segment. Just wait till they do a movie on the Housewives. We'll cover it. Oh, God, yeah. Um, so the pacing in this movie is very interesting. Like I said, it's very patiently paced, is what I would say. Um, compared to I think Maybe movies that horror movies from the mid two thousands. Um, this is much slower, and even the eighties when we like Nightmare on Elm Street is so much faster. I was gonna say this. this movie reminds me more of Midsummer than it does of Nightmare on Elm Street. How did you feel about the pacing in this movie? I think it's appropriate mm. for the character, and I also think it's appropriate for the budget. Yeah. Uh, they didn't really have any blood because they didn't have any money for blood. Which I liked that it wasn't uh, super gory. I would have liked if there was a little bit more because there's no payoff in the kills. I didn't find the kills to be very interesting. Yeah. Like in, in Elm Street, those two are wild. blew my freaking mind. Yeah, yeah. And the other one was okay too with Rod. But, um, and even the one with the mom was kind of cool. Uh, in, you know, when they like yeah. sort of yeah, it's char like, up Aww. in the bed. Yeah, even those were kind of cool. This one, I don't think they were, other than the one where he's... I don't know. I guess they were kind of memorable. Even though maybe the kills aren't super uh, memorable. They don't have to be gory, gory. They don't have to be crazy. I do think that the scene where Laurie discovers them is so creepy. Yeah, that is awesome. And I would maybe disagree. Not that the kills weren't memorable, but sometimes the leading up is the payoff itself. Like when he's in the ghost outfit. That's great. And you're just like waiting. Cause you know, what's going to happen. That's what a lot of the movie is. I feel like there's a ton of dramatic irony. And I just didn't think, I didn't think that there was quite enough payoff. That's all. I understand that. I, but again, I, I want to qualify everything I say on this episode. Now that we're like probably about halfway in, I respect this movie for everything that it was in 1978. Yeah. I just, my general opinion is that we've seen it done better since. Okay, that's And if, fair. if anybody says that this is the greatest horror movie of all time, I will not begrudge them that opinion. Mm-hmm. I just, when I was watching it, I, it didn't hit me like that. Yeah. But I understand the context of where it came from and how it was the first big one and such a huge indie movie and how they probably did the most with the least of like any movie ever. I totally yeah. get all that. Yeah. I'm just looking at it from the movie perspective as the movie's rolling. I think I've seen most, if not all of this movie done better. I, Maybe not the cinematography and the score. I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. I think my favorite thing about this movie is the kind of anticipation not being paid off. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, I like, like, I like, like the when, fact that he gets away at the end. I love oh, that. Oh, that's cool. Oh, no, but I mean like in the beginning when Laurie thinks she, or Laurie sees him behind the hedge, right? Yeah. And then... Her friend walks there, makes a joke. Laurie comes, he's gone. That's all good. But then Laurie walks, continues to walk, right, down the street, and another hedge comes. And you're just like, okay, he's going to be at this hedge. And he's not. And the scene ends, right? I love that. Yeah, no, the, the tension building is great. Yeah, that's it. The tension building is wild. But it's because they had no money, which is... 
Again, a and great it's an use amazing of money. creative way to it's, make a great horror it's movie. It's probably, I would say, for the punch that it packed in 1978, the most economical use of money of all time. <laughs> I do think that a horror fan watching this movie today, a young younger person would be bored. Yeah. And I've I haven't seen that many horror movies, so I'm not exactly an aficionado. Right. So again, I haven't seen a lot of the stuff that came before this or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. But and I give this movie credit for everything that it spawned because you don't get Nightmare on Elm Street. You don't get Scream. You don't get Friday the 13th without Halloween. Absolutely. So I get all that. I'm just discussing the movie itself, the 91 minute, 80, 98 minutes, whatever it was. 91. 91? Sorry, I was euphoric before I forgot. <laughs> um, so good. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm just talking about those 91 minutes. Totally. So just like in most of the movies that we've watched this month, this is really interesting. Not Shaun of the Dead. I don't count that. I know exactly but- what you're going to say. What? It has one main, like, focal point? No. Okay. No. There is a major critique of absent parents. Yeah. Right? Think about it. Um, well, Beetlejuice, I guess it's not absent parents, but it's a critique of parents. Poor parents. Of poor parenting. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Shaun of the Dead has the stepdad relationship. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, there are. there's a fraught relationship. There's something there. Yeah. Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street. You have absent parents, like the latchkey girl have, being you killed have the first. Whole, you have the whole, um, what's the word? You run the gamut of all yes, the different parents. run the gamut of it. Scream, not a parent to be found in much of that Except movie. Except the dad. Except Sydney's dad. Yes, right. <laughs> who is like the who's, suspect for most of the And who's absent for most of the yeah, movie. Yeah. But they're trying to find him. Yep. And then here, um, you have... The only parents that are in it are Michael's parents at the beginning after he kills his sister and one Never of the girls, seen again. and one of the girls' dads who's the sheriff and is not doesn't interact with her no. at all. I don't. Yeah, think. so you have sort of that same thing of of a critique on parenting and how maybe that lack of a close relationship can breed problems. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I don't really have a question attached to that. Well, in all four of those movies, again, not counting, um, Shaun of the Dead, all take place in like suburban, uh, yeah. safe zones, yeah. you know? I think that most of the horror movies that I watch with like kind of younger protagonists have that same thing. Like Friday the 13th, they're at a summer camp, so there's no parents. Yeah. I'm not saying that there's bad parent that they're bad parents. They're not for sending their kids to summer camp, right. but, um, you have that. Like Midsummer is uh, there's a thing on grief where she loses her parents, and there's something to deal with that with that absenteeism happening. Hereditary, there's a whole thing with family lines. That's right? the movie. That's the movie. <laughs> there's a big. It's not that there's bad parenting though. It's 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 just about it's a family like generational trauma, trauma and yes, stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And how you carry what your parents give you and and, and you yeah. know, yada yada yada. I find it to be a very common theme in horror films in particular horror directors have daddy issues yeah and mommy issues yeah for sure <laughs> um one question that i have that i did ask you beforehand um was what is your favorite horror movie trope now a horror movie trope, think about it as like a theme. It's something that you see in, in many films. And sometimes tropes can be overdone, right? You have some, like the jump scare is one horror movie trope. That will not be my number one. I hate a jump. I hate jump scares. I think when done effectively, they can be effective. I have no problem but, with jump scares in general. They've just been done to death. And I just don't like them. 
uh, I don't like to be scared in that way. I think some of the jump scares in Halloween were great. Yeah. There was only a few. I just think when it's done as a cheap shock factor, right. I don't like that. Um, you have to already have the the, the dread or something else yeah. accompanying it. Here are some tropes that I wrote down that I found that I think you can consider or you can think about your own. We have the final girl horror movie trope, right? Where you have that one character where there's a whole big thing on it um, where you have to be the last person standing, but you can be the person that kind of finally gets the villain or not, right? Like in Halloween, she's not. Laurie's not the one who kills Michael. She's just the final girl. She's and they don't the always have girl. to be a girl. Right. Like um, um, Bruce Campbell's character in The Evil Dead, Ash, is the final girl in The Evil Dead. There's a big thing on whether the final girl trope is feminist or not. I think that's kind of interesting, but whatever. Um, the morality play. Basically, if you are chased and you are not um, obsessed with uh, boys and all of that, that's a good thing. And and if you are, then oh, uh-oh, you're the next one to go. One note on that. Regarding this movie in particular, John Carpenter said mm -hmm. that that was not what they were intending. Yes. It was just because that's the way to distract kids so that Michael Myers could come and kill them. He said teens just like to do that. So. Yes. <laughs> he said there was no message to this movie either, and he just wants to entertain. Which is fair. Oh, to any of his movies, I guess, at that point, because it was a contemporaneous interview. Yep. And there were three, I think. One that is also in Halloween is the haunted house trope, mm -hmm. which is creepy. Timeless. Yes. You have found footage, which has been used a lot more recently. And by recently, I mean within the past 20, 25 years. Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity. Um, you've got Cloverfield, which isn't quite a horror movie, but it's... The Ring, sort of. Yeah, right? Like the where someone finds the uh, creepy And they piece thing. it together one yeah, way or exactly. another. Yeah, exactly. I said jump scare... Uh, based on a true story is always good. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, like that one. You've got characters Googling and finding something from the past. Yeah. Right? What would you say is your favorite horror movie trope? I love the final girl. Yeah. Period. Yeah. It's, I love connecting to characters. And when you have a great final girl, we've had three good ones this month. Yeah. Um, and, and I love, like I said, Ash from the Evil Dead. Like there's so many good ones that, are just great. Um, and I think that when you have a great final girl, you have somebody who you can root for yeah. that is great and amazing and a really cool character. Yeah. Then I think that makes the movie that much better. So there's an old saying uh, when it comes to pro wrestling and it's uh, heels, which are the bad guys, sell tickets. Faces, who are the good guys, sell t-shirts. I want the Laurie Strode t-shirt. I want the Sydney Prescott t-shirt. Right. I want the... Uh, Nancy, whatever her last name is, T-shirt. Yeah. I want to see Freddie get killed. I want to see Michael Michael Myers get killed. I want to see Ghostface get killed. Yeah. And when you have somebody that you can get behind and you can root for, I think that is the number one thing, number one trope in horror movies. What I also like about it is that... When done can, correctly, of course. Oh, right, of course. You can do it in so many different ways, too. Um, there's... You could have it where... I like Naomi Watts in The Ring. She's the final girl, but she's going to be traumatized by the end of that movie. Yeah. Right? Like, she's going through it. Well, think of Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Like Nancy comes back in the third one or whatever, and I'm sure has to deal with whatever she needs to deal with from the first one. Mm-hmm. And then you have like um, in Midsummer, where Florence Pugh's character with that crazy ending, that smile at the end, you're like, ooh, wait, is she actually perpetuating the evil? Yeah. Right? Like there's there's some good stuff there. Um, I, I agree. I really like that final girl trope. The final girl in Hereditary, too, is sort of like that. It's like, okay, well, where are we going to go from here? Mm-hmm. And you don't know. That's interesting. And it's a guy. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, shout out Naked Brothers Band. Yes. <laughs> so one question I have overall. I just want to know, Tom, what's your favorite horror movie? You know? You can I, give me a top five, top three. I'll give you I'll give you a couple. I love Scream. Scream is one of my favorites. In case you couldn't tell by us gushing over it in that first uh, episode of this month, I love Scream. Me too. Um, I will give you... I also love The Nightmare on Elm Street for what it's worth. So good. I will also give you probably my number one, which I think is the coolest one, which is the one I talked about uh, last week or two weeks ago, The Thing, 1982. It's a great movie. John Carpenter as well. I love that movie. I love Kurt Russell. It was the answer for Framed today. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I I explained it last time or whenever I talked about it, but basically it's... A, it's almost like an Agatha Christie mystery. It's almost mm-hmm. like a whodunit. Yeah. Where all of these guys who are like at some station in Antarctica, it's like a military station or something like that, uh, are this thing gets unleashed and you never see it. It's a shapeshifter. It takes the form of the guys at the place. So like if you, you know, Kurt Russell's like, you know, the guy next to me might be the thing, which has been killing all the other guys and, you know, sort of one by one by one by one. And then it's the final showdown. And I think there's two guys left at the end. It's Kurt Russell and somebody else. Mm -hmm. And you don't know whether... Kurt Russell could be the thing. You don't know. I just think it's such an awesome concept. And it comes from a movie called The Thing from Another World, which I believe came out in the 50s or 60s, or maybe 70s, which they're watching in this movie. Yes, in in Halloween. Halloween, Yeah. uh, Which is really, really cool. And I think that one was a little bit more sci-fi-y than horror. Mm-hmm. The Carpenter one was horror, horror. Yeah. And I love that. I love the idea of something you can't see. The fact that you can't trust what's in front of your eyes. I yeah. love the concept. I love when a horror movie kind of screws with your brain a little bit. That's cool. So I'm going to go with The Thing. Cool. Scream is one of my favorite movies for sure. Scream for obvious one. reasons is yeah. up there for me. Get Out is one of my favorite okay, movies of all time. I didn't think time. of that one. Yeah, right. Um, Get Out, if you don't know, is a 2017 horror yes. film that... I would call it a societal horror film. Yeah, that won... Anthropological horror Yes, film. it won Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. It's a Jordan Peele movie. It's his directorial debut. He won the Oscar for writing it. And um, it is about a uh, young black man who goes to visit his white girlfriend's family in new england and weird stuff starts happening our son is gooing at the moment if you can hear him he loves the movie too it is an excellent movie of uh with a kind of view on society one of the best movies i've ever seen in theaters because of the way the audience reacts it is truly a movie that's meant to be seen in theaters. When we're waiting to do I this bet, movie on the I, yeah, podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it so much. I I've seen that, it twice in I bet theaters. That if not already, by the time it's like its 10th anniversary comes around, you're going to be seeing it in theaters. It's going to be one of those that pops back up in theaters. And you know we're going to go see it. Oh, yeah. And you have to. If you're listening to this right now and you did not see Get Out in theaters, you should go see it whenever you can, if it ever comes back. With an theaters. audience. Absolutely. Because that 
at the end of that movie, which I won't spoil here, um, Jordan Peele had the audience in the palm of his hand. A hundred ten percent. And the the big moment when you have a visceral reaction to something that happens. It happened like three times in a row too. Yeah. It proves his point. Yeah. He has it's, a very distinct point. It's really, really good. And it's creepy. It's a scary movie. Um, For some reason, I didn't think of that when I was, when I was thinking of horror movies. Yeah. Uh, the thing is still my favorite, but get out of <laughs> there. I also love The Sixth Sense. Okay. It holds up. Yeah. I don't know if, I know it's a thriller not horror. Yeah, I just, you know, I liked Unbreakable more, which is not a horror movie, but when I, when I think of M. Night, I think of more of Unbreakable. Right. But I don't know. I loved The Sixth Sense. The twist, it was wild. Yeah. I, I know I everybody mean, knows it, I but... Had, I knew it for like a decade and a half before I even watched the movie, so that's probably on me, too. The first time I watched it, I cried. I found it to be... Did you not be, know the twist at the time? No, I didn't. And I found it to be like very sad. Very, yeah. very sad. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent movie. And then if you're going classic, you just can't beat the vibe of The Exorcist. Yeah. You really can't. I also love Rosemary's Baby, which we've talked about a bunch Rosemary's of times. Rosemary's Baby is a great example of using horror and comedy together. And also the fact that it was like a paranoia movie. Yeah. And the paranoia kind of spoilers here like ends up being right. Yeah. You know? That's is, crazy. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. You're like, oh, this, she's sort of hysterical and all that. And it's like, oh, she was kind of right. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that, especially because there's that whole overplayed thing of women being hysterical, right? Yeah. That um, hysterical being rooted yeah. in its word with Hysteria. women. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, it's a shame that Roman Polanski gave us this movie. Yeah. Which was which somebody else. Needs to be mentioned. But. Yeah. Um, though we love Mia Farrow. We do. Um, so it's and Ruth Gordon, she's so good in it. The uh, the neighbor, yeah, yeah, yeah she's yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, so that's what the um, that's who the endowed character in Hereditary reminds me of. Interesting, um, yeah. So I I have a ton of horror movies that I really enjoy, but those are probably my my top. Um, so. I know that not everybody is very into horror. I think that we have uh, some scaredy cats, which there's nothing wrong with being a scaredy cat. Sure. I would kind of consider, I don't, I, maybe I'm not. I always thought I was a scaredy cat, but it turns out I went watching like a nah. lot of horror movies. Yeah, you, you go pretty hard. I guess so. <laughs> so I was just thinking for those of us in the audience who maybe, because I, I'll watch like almost anything. I yeah. won't watch the torture stuff. Nah, like hostile. I like won't stuff. watch any of that. What about the one where House of Wax? I mean, see Paris die. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's that was whatever. probably tongue in cheek. I didn't I didn't watch that movie. Like, there's this the terror fire. I won't watch that. Last House on the Left. I will not watch that. You're rescinding what you said a couple of episodes ago. Yes, I looked up the Wikipedia plot summary. I I will. I'm not into things that um like I actively will. Never watch something that portrays sexual assault in graphic in a graphic way. I just do not think that that's necessary at all. Um, so I will not be watching that movie. Um, I said that I'll watch it and I'll let you know if you would be able to handle it. And I'm not going to watch it. My guess is um, no, but. But I, I do watch a lot of horror, but um, I did want to come up with maybe some like soft horror, cuddly horror movies, <laughs> things that maybe are, are thrillers or a little bit less 
um, less oh, outright scary. Maybe something that is more of a movie that you feel dread or you feel nervous or it's a, a mystery. Um, something Some thrillers that's, fall into this. Yeah. I've got a couple. All right, wait, but before you do, I have my, can I tell you mine? Yeah. My big, I just went in one direction. Get Out is one of them for me. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's some David Fincher movies. Yes. I think maybe explore Fincher. We talked about Zodiac. A couple Zodiac ago. is a great example of that. Gone Girl is a perfect soft horror movie. And so is Seven. Yeah. Um, I forgot about Seven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that if you want to dip your toe in, but not worry so much about um, jump scares, uh, jump scares or... and instead really focus on the mystery, the thriller aspect, you can't go wrong with that. What do you have? I've got Ex Machina. Yes. Uh, which was uh, 2014 Alex Garland. And it's about like an android played by Alicia Vikander. And um, basically you learn all about this android. Oscar Isaac's amazing in it. Donald Gleason's amazing in it. Um, Misery, which we've covered. Love Misery. Which I don't think is a horror movie per se, but uh, you could argue it is. But um, I don't have that as a real horror movie. I also really liked... Uh, 1994's Interview with a Vampire. That's a great movie. It's vampire related and it's scary in that way. And there's like a really creepy Kirsten Dunst in it and all that. But it's not like a horror horror movie. Um, it's sort of like a like a like a soft like like LGBT movie too because there's like weird tension. Not weird, but there's like gay tension between Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise that doesn't get fully explored. I apparently the show Interview with a Vampire that's airing on I think Sci-Fi is awesome. And leans way more into that. Okay, that's cool. Which is a cool thing. I have, to, I have yet like, to check it out. Like, though. if you like Twilight, but want something a little more horror-y. A little more gothic. Yeah, go with that. Yeah, Prisoners is another one. Oh, my God. Prisoners? Okay, the first, like, third of that movie, I was like, why am I watching this? I'm so sad and, like, disturbed. And then by the end, I'm like, what? The end of Prisoners was awesome. Wild. Uh, that was the movie that kickstarted my Jill and Hall love. He's great. He is. He really is. And, um... <laughs> Maybe uncut gems. <laughs> yeah, that is certainly an anxiety. It's more ten movie. yeah, it's not hard. There's no horror to it at all. But it's like just it, it sort of elevates your heartbeat in a similar way that 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 uh, a horror movie would. That's great. I think I had one more, but I can't remember what it is. The lighthouse, maybe. <laughs> the lighthouse is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> the lighthouse is nuts. Um, we mentioned the others. Yes, the others is a great one. We mentioned that I think last week. Uh. The Gift. Yes. Starring Joel Edgerton and... Um, Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall. That's a really, really, really good thriller. Those are the ones that are that are coming to mind and that I'm looking at on my phone right now. Those are great. I think we have yeah. a great list there. Yeah. You got to watch The Gift. If you haven't watched The Gift, go watch it's The Gift. It's so crazy. Yeah. So that's what, that's, that's what I got on that. I love it. Tom, I'm done with my questions. Okay. We are about an hour in, so oh, we, can, that's perfect. we can start to kind of rain it in here mrs nesbitt identity crisis award the, the, the horror movies don't really have these no uh same with food i think we can i think we can take as a retrospective for this month that horror movies don't really have much character development on the whole and they don't have much many memorable uses of food yeah i agree uh i don't think i have a single one from this movie food wise no i can't think of any i think she makes popcorn yeah he asked if they can make popcorn. Okay. That's about it. Yeah. Which is <laughs> nothing. Uh, yeah. So that's that. Uh, what questions do I have? Let me look here. 
think you wanted me to rank. Okay, I got you. I got you. Rank your favorite group of characters. Meaning it's like, Scream. Meaning the Scream teenage. I want you to rank. Scream is number one. Yeah. Scream is number one, obviously. And then Nightmare on Elm Nightmare Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, then Halloween. I completely agree. I think that... That period dot. Yeah. Screams are by far the most memorable. Nightmares, oh I think, did a good job of characterizing them all. Yes. Halloween... It's all are, about Jamie Lee. And they're all caricatures. Yeah. Uh, which works in some movies. And again, worked at the time. Right, exactly. But it was done better, in my opinion, in Scream and in Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. So this is kind of going with what I was saying. And relatedly, who is the... You don't need to rank these, but you can if you want. Who is the best Scream queen out of Jamie Lee Curtis, Heather Langenkamp, and Nev Campbell? It's Heather Langenkamp for me. Yep. Because she's... I Like I said in the episode for A Nightmare on Elm Street, she's got the thousand-year stare. She's amazing. She's 16 in the movie, like as the character 16... But she feels like she's lived a hundred lives. And she is by far the least famous of these three. By far. Um, would you? Who would you say is better, Campbell or uh, Curtis? Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay. I'm not... I like Nev Campbell. The character's a little sad girl for me. Yeah, I would put Nev Campbell ahead, I think. Oh. I mean, fight, no, again... Fight, fight, No disrespect to Jamie Lee Curtis. I just think it's been done better. Sure. Um... She, she she's honestly probably amazing in the later ones. Yeah. Once it was an established thing, like a uh, butt kicker. Yeah. Yeah. Or she doesn't even need to be a butt kicker. Like Sydney's not really until the end of until the end of Scream. Yeah. But like I don't know. I just think I just think Laurie of the three of those characters is by far the dumbest. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> um, what is the scariest part of this movie? I've got to me. It's the tension. It's the, oh my God, is he there? Oh my God, is he there? No, he's not. Where is he? Okay. You know what I've got? What? Which I think is the biggest payoff of the movie. Oh, where it's like the dead friends and the- And the tombstone, tombstone on the tombstone? bed. Yes. Oh my God. I think I said, oh my God, when with, it happened. <laughs> with a close second to his body being gone at the end. Yeah, that's so creepy. I love the idea that he could be anywhere at any time, in any neighborhood, in yeah. theory. Because it's, like it's like an idyllic little suburban neighborhood with, also the, love with the, the leaves blowing along, along the ground yeah. and things like that. I love the fact that it was made, a or well, it was based on Haddonfield, New Jersey, Yeah, which is a, such a nice town. It looks like Haddonfield, it New Jersey. It looks just like Haddonfield, New Jersey. When I picture really Haddonfield, does. I have a good friend who lived in Haddon Heights, I think, right next door. Yep. And it's the... It's exactly what I think of when I think of Haddonfield, New Jersey. We and it just, was in, it was in like went. Palm Beach, California. Yeah. We just went to Haddonfield not that long ago. We did. We did. And it's such a nice town. Um, yeah. I'm just going to go through a couple of my comments. I said that the Myers house has Boo Radley vibes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out. High school Shout English. Shout out Big Boo. <laughs> um, I said, Mike easily could have killed Lori when she was walking down the street away from him. That ends this entire series. Oh, there were so many times where it would just be like, oh, I guess that movie's over. What about that? chose that. What about that one part where he's standing behind her? I think it's when he comes up behind her in the closet and he yeah. slashes like her sleeve. Yes. He could have, like, she's right in front of him. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, it's, those things are the reason why I didn't find this one to be as, as good Michael's as not a very uh, good villain. He's not good and he's not interesting, in my opinion. Mm. Um, That's why we needed the driving comedy. Yes. Michael drives. Yes. It should have been a buddy a buddy comedy. Yes. Uh, other, this is a, a, a positive thing to say. Another, uh, other suburban horror films we've watched have been great. But none of them have quite used the suburb itself as effectively as this movie does. Yeah, I agree with that. 
because you got the hedge scene, you got the houses across the street from each other. You can, you can real like literally when you see the, the, the wind blowing the leaves and stuff, you can oh, feel the, ch- you can like feel the chill of the wind. Like mm-hmm. a, a, none of the, the other two movies, uh, meaning nightmare and, um, scream didn't necessarily use the setting as a character right. as much as this one did, which right. I found to be another great part of the movie. I agree with you. Um, of course the music I wrote down a bunch of times. Music is great. Um, it's, it's if iconic. you don't know, it's this. That's that's the music. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I also wrote that, which is similar to what I've been saying here. This movie carries Michael Myers. Like I think that without the amazing cinematography and direction and music, he doesn't stand the test of time. I didn't, like I said, I didn't find it to be especially compelling. Well, there's a reason why it's Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. I haven't seen any, I've, I haven't seen any of the early Friday the 13th, so I can't really weigh in on that. But I mean, it's also the fact that they were able to like reach an agreement. I'm sure if, I'm sure if, uh, you know, Carpenter or whoever owned Myers said it was Freddy versus Michael, they would have made that work too. Do you think Michael talks? Ever? Yeah. Um, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay what do you think he talks about uh killing oh um, god not like mcdonald's pretzels oh that would be fun <laughs> what what do you think michael myers annie ann order is oh man it's got to be the cinnamon one no it's definitely <laughs> the uh the pretzel dog <laughs> <laughs> dipped in cheddar cheese sauce oh man and then he just like kills the person who gives it to him no never he appreciates the anians <laughs> he, tips them. he tips them big. michael myers tips michael the myers is a good tipper he absolutely is chucky bad tipper chucky tip no well then the tip of the knife but <laughs> oh god michael myers he's a really good tipper yeah i was thinking about debuting a uh, dad joke of the week for this episode but that may be it for now that may be chucky gives the tip of the knife like ma- major like tart lemonade from there oh my god i don't Next think i ever door. had that oh it's so good um i'm gonna go into some of the trivia yeah so, you said the thing about Haddonfield. Deborah Hill wrote most of the dialogue for the female characters, while John Carpenter concentrated on Dr. Loomis. Oh, that's interesting. It's, there it, is a very distinct difference there. Listen, I don't know what Deborah Hill's talents are besides this, um, but the Loomis dialogue was so much better than the... Ugh. Totally. No, that, that's, imp- that's improv. Oh, really? That actress said it at that time... She said totally all the time, and she wanted to like use a part of her in the character. Oh, that's funny. So that was not written by Deborah Hill. Where it's like, you like what you see? She said that was improv, too. Oh, my God! <laughs> yeah. Uh, that actress was in, like, six Hollywood movies, and she was naked in every single one. Oh, girl. <laughs> that's all right. Do what you but, want, girl. Well, she said it in, like, yeah. the interview I was watching. She was like, yeah, I just, whatever. Like, <laughs> Hey, you know what? You're in your prime. Yeah. You gotta yeah. do what you gotta You're do. You're typecast. Now that's Dennis Quaid's ex-wife. Uh, yes. Yeah. Love yep. it. Um, so the film was shot out of sequence. Yeah. Okay. Is this the one where Carpenter gave Jamie Lee Curtis a number on how scared to act f- out of 10? A fear meter. A fear meter. Yep. Um, so Donald Pleasance, as I uh, noted, who played Dr. Loomis, he, they brought him on board. The, the <laughs> Carpenter made the producer give an extra 20 grand just for Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. And he did all of his scenes in only five days. Wow. He did five days for 20 grand. That's pretty good. The total duration of his scenes is just over 18 minutes. That's Beetlejuice 5. <laughs> exactly. 
Pleasance had consumed two bottles of wine before doing the scene where he and the nurse are talking about Michael in a car right before Michael steals the car. Carpenter was worried that he would be incomprehensible and had to talk with him beforehand, but to the crew's amazement, it says, Pleasance pulled it off. That's awesome. <laughs> he just crushed a couple bottles of wine. Uh, originally, Loomis was supposed to have a phone conversation with his wife, but Pleasance said he wasn't going to do it because he thought the character shouldn't have a family or a past. I like that, actually, yeah. That, that's pretty cool. Um, as it has been noted, the killer is referred to in the script and credits as the shape. He's not Michael Myers. Whoa! The word shape was used by the Salem witch trials judges to describe specters or spirits of the accused doing mischief or harming another person. That's so deep. I feel yeah. like horror movies get so deep. This one's not that deep, though. No, I know, but that's deep. That's a cool, a yeah, cool thing. Cool yeah, he's called tidbit. the shape throughout the whole the whole script. Um, as we spoke about, um, Carpenter purposely took a more restrained, suggestive approach with this with the gore in this movie. He learned his lesson with his previous movie, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, which came out two years prior, when he killed off Kim Richards' character. Hey, Kim Richards! We just talked about it. Was her? And the audience wound up hating him. They ended up not liking the way he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the producer also insisted that very little blood be used because he was a fan of radio plays where all the horror happens in the audience's minds. And so, because of this. Carpenter purposely took a more discreet approach, like Psycho, as opposed to an over-the-top yep. gore fest. Yep. Um, oh my, that is so funny. Full circle, man. Kim Richards. It I was know, her. I know. And it was John Carpenter. Yep. As stated by Jimmy Lee Curtis on the film's commentary, when Laurie says it was the boogeyman to Dr. Loomis at the end of the film, uh, on her right cheek, there are noticeable lines. Jimmy Lee explained that those lines are there because the scene was shot immediately following lunch during which Jamie Lee had fallen asleep on the couch in the living room downstairs, <laughs> which was a corduroy couch, which left an impression uh-huh, on her face. Yeah. Uh, we got some stuff on Michael Myers. The story is based on an experience John Carpenter had in college touring a psych hospital. Carpenter met a child who stared at him, quote, with a look of evil, and it terrified me. Ooh. Um, in a 2010 documentary, which I think was the one I watched, it was revealed that five different people dressed as the shape. Nick Castle, throughout the movie, who was just Carpenter's friend, that That's was sitting, cool. he wanted, he was trying to get his film career going as a director. And he came to the set one day and Carpenter was like, put this mask on, like, just go do this. Yeah. And they were in a band together with one of the producers of or the, the production designer of this movie too. Uh, Tony Moran, who is the guy that you see when he's unmasked. Okay. Stuntman James Winburn, production designer Tommy Lee Wallace, who's the other guy in the band. Yep. Um, due to his knowledge of how much force would be needed to break props during action shots. Oh, that's and cool. And Deborah Hill right, in, the, as ex- baby in the shot in the beginning. Yeah. Um. The movie that Tommy and Laurie is wa- are watching is The Thing from Another World, 1951. So 1951. Then Carpenter went on to direct the, the remake, as I noted. Um, so The Thing from Another World and another movie that they, that they were watching called Forbidden Planet were both frequently Halloween TV specials ah. in the 70s. Um, acco- uh, appropriate to Halloween's characteristics, the first movie involves a tall, malicious, emotionless being who stalks for blood and is nearly indestructible. The later movie involves a powerful, nebulously shaped, indestructible manifestation of the id, the primal, mm-hmm. instinctive, amoral yep. component of humans who suddenly appears and murders. Carpenter has also said that Michael Myers's character was based on Yul Brynner's robotic assassin character from 1973's Westworld. Weird. Yeah. Um, for years after Halloween was released, this one's really funny. People would tell Carpenter how horrified they were by Myers' grotesque, grotesquely 
disfigured face when Laurie pulls I off his mask. I didn't think it was that bad. But actually, all they saw was the ordinary face of the actor playing the role, perfectly normal, except for the small knife wound inflicted by Laurie, which was created using special effects makeup. Carpenter cites this as evidence of the power of suggestion in cinema, mm. that the audience saw a monster on screen, so assumed that he must look like a monster. Yeah, that's interesting. Nick Castle said that they wanted somebody who looked more angelic, so against Myers' type. Right. So they had Moran do it, but he joked that he'd have been a better choice because he's better looking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Carpenter, oh, this was really cool too. Carpenter said they did two shots of the ending. One where Pleasance is stunned that Myers is gone and the one they used where he makes a look that's like- I much prefer that, where he's like, oh, well, there he is. Basically, he's like, I knew this would happen. Yep. Which is just has so much more behind it. Yeah. Um, Casting. He considered the hiring of Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate tribute to Sir Alfred Hitchcock, who had given her mother, Janet Lee, the psycho role. Uh, Dr. Sam Loomis was named after Sam Loomis from Psycho. During the same period, Universal Studio producers uh, were trying to enroll Jamie Lee in Psycho 2. Oh, funny. Yeah, which obviously she didn't end up being in. Uh, Sam Loomis was obviously played eventually by Donald Pleasance. Here's the group of people that were considered. And then I'll give you the final two besides Pleasance. Okay. Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Mel Brooks. Yeah. Walter Matthau. Um, Mel Brooks is weird. I know. Kirk Douglas. John Belushi. Abe <laughs> Vigoda. Chris Christopherson. Okay. David Carradine. Yeah. Yul Brynner. Uh-huh. Uh, Dennis Hopper. Interesting the, mix. The final three were Donald Pleasance, Peter Cushing. Do you, do you know who he is? No. He is in a, a million things. Okay. And Christopher Lee. Hey. He said this was the biggest regret he had was not taking the Loomis. Yeah, role. I bet. And that's a guy who Christopher Lee was in like 300 movies. That's a guy who was in like 300 movies and acted until he was like 92 years old. Yeah, exactly. R.I.P. to the God also. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Robert England was actually part of this movie. He played Freddy Krueger in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. He was one of the people that was throwing bags of dead leaves on the set. Oh, awesome. So that's really cool to have him. Uh-huh. And then six years later, he's in Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, that's really all the trivia I have. Oh, no, no, I got a good one from Donald Pleasance. Uh, I kind of described how ornery he was. <laughs> um, Carpenter, when they met for the first time, Pleasance started by saying that he didn't understand or like the script, saying, I don't know why I'm in this movie and I don't know who my character is. The only reason I'm doing this movie is because I have alimony to pay and my daughter in England is in a rock and roll group and she told me that the music you did for Assault on Precinct 13 is cool. <laughs> Although Pleasance asked Carpenter difficult questions about his character, he turned out to be a good-humored, big-hearted individual. I love that. Carpenter later found out that Pleasance simply wanted to test him to find out if he had any real passion for his project, and they became great friends. Pleasance appeared in two more of his films. Perfect. Oh. That was my water bottle. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's all I got for trivia. That's kind of all I've got in general for Halloween. Oh, oh, I got a little bit more on Carpenter. Sorry. He, I watched a little interview with him, and he talked crap about George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Robert yep. Altman. Yep. He said that they were pretentious and that they couldn't control their narratives. <laughs> he said, I don't think Robert Altman's a very good filmmaker. So rude. Robert Altman is so prolific. He has yeah. so many big movies yeah. that even if you haven't seen them, you know of them. Yes. Um, he says, Carpenter also says that none of his movies have any message. He's just there to entertain. He wants nothing to do with, like he said, political messages and things like that aren't really for me. He doesn't like movies that have them. Again, this was in 78 he right. was saying this. I don't Altman, know. if you don't know, his vibe is very much like Richard Linklater. Yeah. It's not plot-based. It's more vibe. Yeah. Um, he compared, Carpenter compared this movie to a carnival haunted house or things that go bump in the night. Like he was like, that's where I drew my inspiration from, little yeah. things like that. Um, one thing I love, because I just watched this movie, 
he got that opening tracking shot idea from Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which I showed you. I watched it recently, and basically it's like the movie starts with a car bomb being planted, and then you sort of watch the Follow. car go through this little, like, like hopping little, you know, Main Street area. and like In Mexico, I think. Uh, I think it's on the American border of Mexico. Oh, okay. And uh, Charlton Heston is there, and, like, he's the main character. And, like... And Janet Leigh. Um, yeah, and Janet Leigh. And so it's like this whole like super te- like tension, like you see the car turn and it leaves the frame and then it comes back in. It's a really, really it's iconic, really iconic, iconic scene that you should check out on YouTube if you can. And that's where he got the idea to, to do the opening tracking shot with um, kid Michael Myers killing that's his sister. That's very cool. And uh, finally, Carpenter said he showed this movie to an executive without the music because it wasn't ready yet. And they basically were like, this movie's not scary. Like, what are you doing here? Uh, so he didn't think it would have worked without the score, which he says he composed in three days. <laughs> awesome. I mean, with how, fa- with how fast the filming of the movie went, I wouldn't be surprised if it was really three days. Yeah, I agree. He played the keyboards. I mean, yeah. it's not like what he's playing is super complex. It's just really good. Yeah, like my singing of it. Exactly. <laughs> which you can go back and uh, rewind. As and, much as you want. And give us another as play. As many times as you want. Uh, yeah, so does Halloween make baby's first watch list? Yeah! Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> it's great. You gotta, I mean... Y- even though I've I've been a little bit lukewarm on it in this show, it's 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 the it's in the pantheon. You know you have to watch Halloween, and I'm glad I finally did watch Halloween. Great movie. Yeah, so great that you're yawning it out. Oh Lord. <laughs> um, yeah. So what do you think the takeaways are here? Um, I don't know. Keep your head on a swivel. That's good. Finish the job. <laughs> yeah. That's my that's my takeaway from this movie. Don't do what Laurie did. Don't do what Loomis did. Finish the job. There you go. Don't kill people, but like whatever you're doing, make sure you make sure follow you go hundred percent. You follow through. I love that. Perfect. That's Halloween. Finish the job. Perfect. We would have twelve fewer sequels <laughs> if they finished the job in this movie. Is that the worst thing in the world? Though I think Buster Rhymes did finish the job and he came back anyway. He said, so. "Hey, Mikey, happy Halloween." Halloween. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that. What are we doing next week? So by now, the schedule for November should be out. So you will know that we're going to do a little bit of a combo next week. We're going to bring, we're going to give us, give ourselves a little bit of levity from this um, slightly, slightly dark Halloween month as we head towards Thanksgiving. And we are going to do a combination of Charlie Brown, like Peanuts Halloween and Thanksgiving. Yep. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Is it It's the Great Pumpkin? Who knows? And a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. They are both available. Apple TV Plus. I think you can. I think they're letting you on certain dates watch them for free, even if you're not a subscriber. And I think that they play on uh, ABC at some point. It's PBS and PBS said they're not playing this year. Oh, really? So it's just Apple TV. Yeah. So, all right. Get Apple TV. Watch some stuff. Yeah. And while you're there, watch the after party. uh, Ted Lasso. Severance. Severance. Yeah, there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, do a little free trial. Yeah. And come uh, come join us next week for the uh, Charlie Brown doubleheader. It's going to be like... And then Snoopy's going to be like... Bah! <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's Charlie Brown. He's people. like... Bah! <laughs> <laughs> He's like playing basketball, isn't Yeah, he? and then he goes... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so stay tuned next week for some more uh, <laughs> Snoopy impressions. Uh, and yeah, um, again, our YouTube is up and running. So please go follow us, subscribe to our YouTube page, baby's first watch list. 
Follow us on Instagram at Baby's First Watchlist, Twitter at Baby's Watchlist. Please share our reels. We just got a reel the other day that hit 200 likes, which for us is really, really good. <laughs> um, and we want more people to see our stuff. So if you're on Instagram and you follow us and we post a reel, like go link, go share it for us. We would love you if you did that. Because you don't know. Maybe there's people that you don't really talk to that will see that and we'll get another follower or two and then we'll love you forever. Mm-hmm. Finally... Eat all the candy corn and leave the Kit Kats to me. And tell a baby. And tell a baby. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's that. Bye bye. See Happy you later. Happy Halloween. <laughs>